With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't-miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. The Nikki Glaser Podcast. Her roast of Tom Brady stole the show. Now she's talking about it on the latest episode of the Nikki Glaser Podcast. I said, tell Tom Brady that I'm the Tom Brady of roasting. Lots of people roasted the goat, but only Nikki is still being talked about. Every time I refresh my DMs, it's 14 blue check marks of people I didn't even know who knew me are writing like paragraphs to me. Hear that in all episodes of the Nikki Glaser Podcast on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Nikki Glaser Podcast to start listening. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, it's Albert. We're going to kick things off with my takeaways, not just on Divisional Playoff Weekend, but also on the NFL's hiring cycle, wrapping up over the course of the last couple of days. We'll get to our special guest. We'll be breaking down the Divisional Games with him, too, in addition to talking about what happened on Monday night in the College Football Championship. And as always, we wrap things up with your questions in the mailbag. Let's go. All right, welcome in. It's the MMQB Podcast with Albert Breer. Divisional Playoff Weekend is in the books. The AFC Championship, the Chiefs and the Titans, is set, as is the NFC Championship between the Packers and the Niners. All that's coming this weekend. We're going to talk about all of that. We'll talk about the College Football Championship with our special guests, as well as everything that's going on in the NFL. We'll start with my takeaways. Takeaway number one from this week. The San Francisco 49ers are back in the NFC Championship game after a six-year hiatus. And what they've been able to do there... Over the last three years under John Lynch, Kyle Shanahan, Adam Peters is absolutely outstanding. And I'll tell you what, I'm going to give credit to the guy in charge here, Jed York, who was smart enough to recognize three years ago, I need to get out of the way. They had gotten close to the mountaintop with Jim Harbaugh and Trent Balky. There were internal issues between Balky and Harbaugh. And through that, Jed York tried to hang on to what they built. And so he tried to pair Balky with Jim Tom Sewell, who just wasn't a head coach. Tried to pair Jim tried to pair Balky with Chip Kelly. And through iteration after iteration, it was sort of like this implicit message to everyone. This isn't about us. It's about single people. Our program still works. And I I'll give him all the credit in the world for in 2017 sitting there and saying to himself, saying to himself, I got to blow this thing up. I got to blow this MFing thing up. And I got to start over and I got to empower people. And I got to bring in a coach who I believe we can build around and who I believe deeply enough that we can build around that I'm going to let him help build around him. And so what they do? They brought in John Lynch, who played for Kyle's dad, Mike, in Denver. They brought in another guy with Denver Connections and Adam Peters to run the personnel department. And since then, what you've seen is every player who's come in has come in with a purpose, not unlike the way they've built in New England. He's come in to play a role on in the program that, that, that Kyle Shanahan was building. They're not just 
adding talent. And what you see is a team that's built in the image of what Kyle Shanahan wants. They paid a fullback a lot. Well, yeah, they paid a fullback a lot. Kyle Shanahan valued speed on defense. They go and sign Quan Alexander. They are fast all over the place. They have scheme-specific players. They've built through the lines of scrimmage. It's impressive, impressive, impressive. And the reason why they've been able to do this is because Jed York made the decision, I need to get out of the way. And I need to hand this thing over to a guy who I believe is competent enough to build the whole thing around him. So kudos to the Niners. It'll be interesting to see this week Kyle Shannon go up against, again, a guy that he coached with, that he's sort of been tied to over the the course of the these two guys' careers that are about the same age, and that's Matt LaFleur in Green Bay. The first time these two teams met, the Niners won by 30. I think it'll probably be closer this time around. Takeaway number two, finally, things have come together for the Kansas City Chiefs. And it was interesting talking to players after the game because for the first time I heard them say it felt like 2018 again. It felt like what we were what it felt like what was going on out there was sort of us getting back to where we were a year ago. And the reason they've struggled to get there is because of the injuries. That offensive line, good as it was in 2018, lost Mitch Morris in free agency and had all kinds of injury issues. Lots of guys in that offensive line missed time. I think it was 16 games in total between all of them. So there were pieces in and out. Tyreek Hill got hurt. Patrick Mahomes got hurt. So they haven't had the full group out there. They've sort of struggled to hit their stride. And we're going to talk again to our guest about this one, why they were able to find that that second gear that they seemed to be in all year last year. Um, but they certainly seem to have found it. And the great thing about it is through all of their struggles, they had to figure out ways to win games other ways. And the defense now looks capable of carrying them a little bit if they need to need it to. Um, they've been a little bit more resourceful on offense. And now you just inject what they were in 2018 back into it if what we saw on Sunday against the Texans is real, and it's a pretty scary proposition. I'd say probably right now the favorites to win the Super Bowl. Takeaway number three, the Ravens are going to be just fine. They That wasn't good on, on Saturday night. I think we saw some of the flaws in the way their offense is built and that when you get them from behind, they sort of – it takes them out of their comfort zone. Um, you know, I, I, what's going to be most interesting about this whole thing to me is how they're able to evolve the offense. Um, but it feels to me like there's – they, they get to keep both coordinators and Greg Roman and, and, uh, and Wink Martindale. They're innovative on both sides of the ball. And now it's going to be on those guys to keep it moving forward. But I just feel like with the infrastructure they've got in place, um, there's plenty of room for growth still with Lamar Jackson. There are plenty of young players in the roster who should be ascending. They don't have the big number of free agents that they had last year with guys like Eric Weddle and and C.J. Mosley and and Terrell Suggs going out the door. That may may lose Matthew Judon, but I think that every, every, every potential loss they have is manageable. I think the Ravens are still fine, are going to be just fine. To me, it's really about whether or not like they can continue to evolve it, which we've seen those offenses struggle in year two or year three. Um, so that's obviously a challenge. But I think the issues that the Ravens have in front of them are manageable. Number four, the team that beat them, the Titans, what we saw out there was a team that was built with identity, was a team that was built with purpose, Mike Vrabel and John Robinson have built a roster full of ass kickers. And we throw the term analytics around a lot, right? So what are analytics? Well, in baseball, what analytics were, if you want to look at the history of it, baseball analytics were a method to find inefficiencies, a method to find ways to beat the existing conditions. And quite frankly, that's always been what football is. So you look at what the, what the Titans are, how the Titans have built. In an era when you've got 250-pound defensive ends, you've got 220-pound linebackers, you've got safeties who are converted corners, 
and all of this is being done to combat the spread offense, what would be the counterpoint to that? The counterpoint to that would be building a freaking Mack truck on offense. The counterpoint to that would be running Derrick Henry right down Main Street. And so, you know, that term analytics has been thrown around a lot. I don't think anybody would look at the way that the Titans have built themselves and say, wow, like that's the team of the future because it looks old school. But the truth is, when you look at what they've done, it's really a case study in exploiting inefficiencies. Okay, finally, number five, the Cleveland Browns. That's right, the Cleveland Browns are the last ones off the board. They hired their head coach on Monday. It is Kevin Stefanski, the Vikings offensive coordinator. I like Stefanski. Um, I, I like Andrew Barry. I think those guys are good, young, smart guys. This will not work unless they empower Kevin Stefanski. This will not work unless they give Kevin Stefanski control of that locker room. This will not work unless people in that building know who's boss. This organization, the problem there hasn't been one person or the other. The problem there since Jimmy Haslam bought the team is how this whole thing has been broken up into silos. Over here you have the analytics people. Over here you have the scouts. Over here you have the coaches. Over here you have the business people. Over here you have the training staff. And you've got 15 different people who've got a direct line to the owner. And so you know what happens then when something goes wrong? Well, then there's always somewhere somewhere to point the finger. And you've always got near in the owner. And I think as much as anything else, this was a perfect example of it. Perfect example of it. So as th- as guys were rolling through there for their interviews, one of the things that they were told was on game day, they were going to have a game management specialist in their ear. Now, this is a guy who Hugh Jackson and, and Freddie Kitchens had too. So up in the booth, this guy, this game management specialist, was going to be on the headsets, right? Not that unusual. Here's what was unusual. That guy didn't report, wasn't going to report to the head coach. That guy was going to report to Paul DePodesta. So even on game day, the, head co- the, the, the control of the game is split up. So how is a coach supposed to control his locker room? How is a coach supposed to compel players to follow him when things get tough, when there's always somewhere else to go? This will not work unless Kevin Stefanski is empowered. Again, I think Stefanski's a smart guy. I don't I don't necessarily agree with the way the Browns are set up right now. Maybe it'll change. But unless they empower Stefanski, I'm just telling you guys, they won't have a shot. All right, we'll get to our special guest right after this. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. The Nikki Glaser Podcast. Her roast of Tom Brady stole the show. Now she's talking about it on the latest episode of the Nikki Glaser Podcast. I said, tell Tom Brady that I'm the Tom Brady of roasting. Lots of people roasted the goat, but only Nikki is still being talked about. Every time I refresh my DMs, it's 14 blue check marks of people I didn't even know who knew me are writing like paragraphs to me. Hear that in all episodes of the Nikki Glaser Podcast on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Nikki Glaser podcast to start listening. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team. Draft experts and talent scouts, mock drafts, and a few shock drafts, too. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English, and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. All right, we're going to bring back one of our favorite guests now to break down everything, what we saw over the weekend, not just the divisional playoffs, but also in the national championship game. He is a former first-round pick of the Cleveland Browns, ex-Notre Dame quarterback, now with Fox Sports. Brady Quinn, welcome in. Albert, thanks for having me back, man. I really appreciate it. Okay, so let's start here. Um, I like Talking to some of the Chiefs players after the game, it sounded like they found something um, there on Sunday, and... I don't know, like for most of the years sort of felt to me like they were sort of looking for what they had in 2018. And for one reason or another, it seemed to click. And I'm, I'm just wondering when you were watching the Chiefs on Sunday and watching the way Pat played, if there's something that looked a little different to you or maybe that something that they found um, that helped them kind of unlock where they, where they were trying to get back to. Um, I don't know that there was anything specific outside of seeing what I saw from him on the sideline after Houston went up, just the manner in which he was talking to everyone, the manner in which really you could make the case because of the way the AFC West was this year, like outside of biting for playoff spots, I don't want to say that's been smooth sailing because they've gone through some injuries and Patrick Mahomes went through his own issues with injuries this year and maybe not even be a hundred percent right now, but it was never like, like, this is it. Like, this is, this is sudden death. If we lose this game at home, you know, it's over. We're waiting until next year. And, and now we've got a really good chance of making it to the Super Bowl because of how things worked in our favor with Baltimore losing. Like, you just kind of got the sense that in that moment, there was like a different sense of urgency than they really had all year because it is the playoffs, because it is win or go home, and because I think they know how important it is to be back at Arrowhead this upcoming week. And it was almost like they finally got that sense of urgency. And then all of a sudden, seven straight drives, they're scoring points. Like, I hadn't really seen that from them all year, that same type of urgency. But I think because of the situation, because it's the playoffs and everything else, like, you saw that from him. You saw that from them. They looked like, not desperate, but they just were they were a team that was playing with a mission out there every single time they got on the field to score uh, in, in order to dominate this game and not even make it close and not allow Houston the opportunity to come back. Well, you said like the way he was in the sideline. What did you notice about like was it just the way he was getting after his teammates? Like what did yeah, you see there? I, I think it was because he tends to be the guy who comes off as um, you know more laid back. I mean, he shows emotion, he shows excitement, but not really as much sometimes this like fierce. Um, I don't want to say asshole, but for a lack of a better yeah. term, like getting up in some guys' faces. And you saw that a little bit more from him on the sidelines. And, and then him just kind of saying, like, look, like we're good. I got this. Like there's also a piece of him taking ownership and him basically saying, like, we haven't really had to do this all year, but I'm going to put this team on my back. Like this matchup is about me and, and Watson and us kind of going to head-to-head. Like I got this. Like we're going we're gonna to be just fine. It was more of like kind of that sense of maybe more accountability, but the demeanor in which he was communicating and saying it to everyone. Do you think that can be hard for a young quarterback? Like sometimes, like I know, you know, obviously you're naturally in a leadership position, but you're still younger than a lot of the guys in the huddle. And you were in that position at one point, right? Like you started as a true freshman at Notre Dame and you know, you were playing what as a second year player in Cleveland. Um, yeah. Is that like, that's probably a little bit of a tricky thing, right? It is because in the NFL, you get there and you're around guys who are in the 30s. They have families and, and they come to work and they go home. 
right? Yeah. Like this is their job. This is their career. And so like that raw, raw, you know, kind of speech and all that doesn't matter if you're not doing your job. And, and then also if it's not genuine, players can sniff out from a coach or a leader or a quarterback anytime there's something that's being said that's not genuine. And, and Patrick Mahomes isn't necessarily the type where he always needs to give these, these raw, raw pump-up speeches. He just goes out there and usually does it. In that moment, though, it required it, and he stepped up and he said what needed to be said, and he got everyone else to kind of be on the same page, and the offense started to click. So I, I think it can be difficult for a young player just because of the transition, how different it is from college football, but also because if it's not in your nature, if you're not always like that, um, you can't force it. You know, the, the moment has to require it, and then you have to respond. And I thought Patrick Mahomes did that. Are you surprised that it's Ryan Tannehill on the other sideline on Sunday? Yeah, a little bit. And, and it's not because of – I mean, he's played great this season. I think it's more just uh, their team and the way they've done it. You know, having to go to Foxborough and Baltimore and then winning really in pretty dominant, impressive fashion. And he really hasn't had to do quite as much. And that's fine. I don't think we should, should knock him for that. Their defense has played well. They've ran the crap out of the football and really dominated both lines of the scrimmage um, on offense and defense. So he hasn't been required to. Now, this week he will. Uh, I would have a hard time imagining. Like, I think Derek Henry's going to run for a lot, but I have a hard time imagining that you know, he's, he's not going to have to throw for over, over 100 yeah. and continue to make clutch throws when asked upon. See, and I always think that that's sort of part of the equation too, right? Like, like – I, like and I think I've said this to you before, but like I don't know that we ever put enough stock in like how much quarterbacks are a product of their environment, right? Like so, it's you know Patrick Mahomes is great, but he's got Eric Fisher and Mitch Schwartz in front of him, and he's throwing to Tyreek Hill and Sammy Watkins, and he had Kareem Hunt as a rookie, and he's throwing to Travis Kelsey, and I don't know. I mean, like maybe this is just more a reflection on what's around. Uh, Ryan Tannehill and the importance of what's around a quarterback where they're not asking the world of him right now. So he's able to maybe just go out and play. Yeah. But I also think you have to go back during the season and watch how he played and the difference when you put Ryan Tannehill in at quarterback versus Marcus Mariota and the lift that gave that offense and the lift that it gave Derrick Henry to win the rushing title, you know? So mm -hmm. I think it goes hand in hand with, I mean, and I guess I, I make this analogy. So I love old school cars. I had a, a 1973 Bronco. I recently sold it heartbreaking but i uh, just didn't really have any more room for it with like life. the soft but, top uh yeah at the soft top and all oh that's that, awesome right? big mickey thompson tires all that and so i dropped the 302 edder block in it now the engine was running just fine you know when i bought it it only had eighty-eight thousand miles think about that it's yep. like an over 45 year old car yep um and but what you realize with old cars and especially those engines is they're finicky man like you could have one thing off here or there and all of a sudden the starter doesn't work or the timing's off and it just doesn't run right. But when it runs right, man, it purrs the sound from that thing. Like you can hear it down the street and you know exactly what's coming. That's kind of like this NFL offense, or I at least make the case for the Tennessee Titans. Like right now, this, this engine isn't requiring him to do that much and it's running just fine. Early in the season, it required him to do a lot more and he answered and he responded. So you know, you, you've got to have the right collection of parts in order to make, you know, that engine run, uh, at least from my experience learning, trying to tune that thing up and keep it in good condition. And I think it's the exact same thing with quarterback play in every any offense, college or NFL. It, it, it really is the sum of all the parts together that makes that thing run. Well, maybe it's what you expect of the car, too. Because I like oh, yeah. I I don't know like I, I look at it and it's like well yeah I mean are you gonna are you trying to drive it a hundred or are you trying to drive it fifty right like I, I like I look at the two and I I've sort of wondered about this too like Marcus Mariota comes into this year former second overall pick people are starting to call him a bust the weight of the world's on his shoulders and he's coming in and he knows like God if I slip up that could be it for me here whereas Ryan Tannehill's coming in and he's in this spot where it's just all right, like I'm out from Miami now. I, I'm not seen as the top 10 pick anymore. I'm just coming in here to do a job. Like, do you think that there's something psychological there maybe too, where like Mariota is in the spot that Ryan was in before, right? And like has the weight of the world on his shoulders and is expected to be the face of the franchise, whereas now Ryan is able to maybe go in there and play a little bit more free. Yeah, I think he can play more free because it's like, what do they have to lose? You know, yeah. they went to him at a, a point in time in the season where, yeah, playoffs were still potentially in their grasp, but they weren't a great football team at that point. 
um, they were just looking for anything, any sort of lift. And if he just goes in there and does his job and execute the offense the way Arthur Smith has been calling it, you know, they'll be just fine because of the way they run the football. And I think because of what their defense was capable of, but, but, I, but to your point, like it is interesting to look at how Marcus Mariota in the situation he was in, because I, I do think he probably felt the weight of the world. I think if you look at him earlier this year and even last year, two things stood out to me that were different than when we saw him in college. He was less decisive. When he was at Oregon, you know, he, he knew the system. He obviously had been there for a number of years, but he was so much more decisive in his decision-making when he looked to throw, when he looked to run. He just had more confidence to him. And I think between the injuries and maybe the, the noise and the doubt around him, he then became this player that when the first read wasn't there, it's like he didn't trust himself to, to progress or trust himself to stay within the pocket or even at times just take off, put his foot in the ground and run. And, and he, was, he was playing like he had the weight of the world on his shoulders. And then when Ryan Tannehill came in, it's kind of like, well, what do I have to lose, right? It's kind of yeah. a, a year deal to prove it. Uh, this this team's not going to go anywhere unless I, I help them. So it's like I, I've got the great opportunity to be the saver. And what's the downside? You know, it's not like you can experience much uh, more lows than the team that drafted you moving on from you. Well, I mean, to put it to put it to put it blunt, everybody already thinks you suck. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? Like, so it's like so like, well, like like at this point, it's like why not go prove them wrong? Right. That's actually a pretty freeing, liberating thing. And and, and just from my experience, like getting traded to Denver and then not having a chance to play there. You know, I, I was always really hoping for like a true shot, even though it's really hard. But I think the older I got and the longer I was around different teams, I just kind of got to the point where it's like you started to not really care what anyone thought. What, and, and, I, and I think it's hard because you go through this adolescence phase of high school to college where you're trying to appease your coach. You're trying to run the offense the way they're asking to do it. You're, you're trying to do everything that's required of you by everyone that's around you. Then you, you become a pro and it's more about, you know, the accountability that you hold yourself to and your teammates and everyone else. And you really can't care what anyone else on the outside thinks. Like, like and that's it's, it's a hard transition to make, I think, for a lot of young players, let alone uh, young quarterbacks. Okay, I want to hit the NFC before we get into Joe Burrow and everything that happened on Monday night. So on one side, you've got a coach who came up under Mike Shanahan. On the other side, you literally have his son, right? So... Um, I'm wondering when you look at that dynamic of it, right? And we had this offense and like that won the NFC last year too. Sean McVay's running that offense that won the NFC last year too. Um, I'm wondering what that tells you. And, and knowing football like you do, when you look at like what those guys have been able to do, to see two guys that are from the same system, some from the same tree, and now you're seeing so much of it all over the place. What do you think that says about, I, I guess, maybe Mike Shanahan's overall impact of the game and what that offense is? He's had such a greater impact than people want to realize. And, and I think one of the things that, um, whether he was cognizant of it or not at the time, like zone blocking scheme and the way uh, it's, you know, their particular scheme, you know, the outside uh, zone runs and, and everything off of that, the play action pass, the boot game, and everything else. Um, it, it's just, it's remained really the cornerstone of that offense for its entirety, no matter who's calling those plays, whether it's McVeigh or LaFleur or, or Kyle Shanahan. And, it's, it's kind of stood the test of time in part because I think you can get a, a bunch of different lines. I mean, it all starts up front. And so it's all about getting the guys up front to be able to block that scheme and be effective within that scheme. I mean, you can even look at times this year, Rich Scangarello, who comes from that same tree for the Broncos. I know they moved on from him, but if, if you looked at the way they made strides over the course of the years, the offensive line, I mean, at one point you looked at that entire group in Denver and you would have said, this is one of the you know bottom five, bottom three worst offensive lines in the league. By the end of the year, whether it's the combination of Drew Locke, the way he played in the pocket, uh, or just the way that group developed under Munchak and under Scangarello, they improved drastically where like you weren't looking at Garrett Bulls as, uh, as much of a liability. But it takes time, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's one of the things that gets underlooked is as it gets harder and harder for offensive linemen to be developed coming into the league, because they do run a ton of zone scheme in the college ranks, not as much gap, it's not many, many man schemes anymore. Um, you know, that's, that's been a system that stood the test of time to be able to win in the trenches, at least from an offensive perspective, and then also keeping defenses on their toes. But, yeah, it, it's, and I think that part of that is, like, Mike Shanahan, a long time, you know, back, back when he was, you know, winning Super Bowls with the Broncos, you're kind of looking at it and saying, like, all right, like, when is someone going to figure this out? Well, it's kind of been tweaked and adjusted at times, but for the most part, it's been able to withstand that test of even players who are less developed coming into the league still understanding zone blocking schemes and being able to execute it. Why is it so hard to deal with for, for, for opponents? 
it's hard to deal with because in particular with Kyle's offenses, everything mirrors everything else. Like I remember going back and talking to Charlie Weiss just philosophically when he first came to Notre Dame uh, with what they were, had been doing at New England and then like just football one-on-one. And so if you were starting a playbook from scratch and you want to say, okay, what's the most effective way of impacting a defense? Well, everything has to mirror one another. So for every single play that you have out of your 21 or 11 or 12 personnel that you have a run in, you should have a boot off of it if you can or a play action pass off of it. Um, and so you should have something that mimics one another. So the defense really is never able to get a true edge on what you're doing based on your personnel formation um, that you're trying to run or even the look of the play, right? Yeah. And so if you could play like that, you can slow down how a defense plays. And I think Kyle Shanahan does as good a job of anyone at mirroring everything in the run game with the pass game. And then also getting you into, with, with his personnel and formations, getting you into predicted looks. He knows if he plays this group in this formation, you're going to give him the look that he wants. And so he can run to the technique he wants to, or he's going to get the coverage he wants to to throw against. Yeah, and he, I remember him talking, like, I talked to him about this over the summer, and I remember him saying, like, the fullback is sort of part of the key to that, because his whole thing was, if I spend on a fullback, I'm, I can put that fullback on the field, I can get them in a look they don't want to be in, and then I know there are only four or five things they can do out of it. That's right, and, and it's important because the fullback truly creates that base personnel, mm-hmm. okay? Not many teams are going to are gonna play nickel personnel to 21, especially with, with Juszczyk, because he is truly a fullback. He can ISO block in some of their man blocking schemes. You know, he's good if you need him to go up on the, on the second level uh, to, to get the force defender on, like, for example, an outside, uh, an outside sweep or an outside zone play. And then he's obviously good catching the football in the backfield. So you get the best of both worlds. It, let, let's say you have 12 personnel, right? So you're two tight end sets. A lot of times that other tight end ends up being a smaller tight end who's not truly a fullback. And so it, it then allows defenses to say, we're going to play nickel because if you put that guy outside as a wide receiver, we need to be able to match up with him. And to be honest with you, we're really not threatened by his ability to run because you're not, you're not going to run to him on the front side of a play for the most part. Or if you do, he's going to be climbing up on the second level defender. And we feel like our strong safety can beat him, right? Yep. And so th- that's what I think you see a lot. There's not really many two true, like two tight end sets anymore where both those guys are your true wide traditional tight end. Right, right. All right, let's get to the national championship game, and I'm going to put you on the spot to begin with. Um, with the question I feel like everybody's asking this morning, if I put you in charge of an NFL team tomorrow, let's call it an expansion team, and Trevor Lawrence and Joe Burrow were in the draft pool, who would you take? I would take Trevor Lawrence still. Okay. And I'll, I'll, I'll answer that question by asking you a question. Okay. If you put Trevor Lawrence in LSU's offense, how do you think he would have performed? <laughs> probably pretty good. I mean, I, yeah, I, you take Moss and Jefferson and Chase and uh, and, and Edwards Hilaire. Yeah, I, probably he probably would have. Although he like Lawrence has talent around him too, right? Like Higgins can play to, Justin to a degree. Ross. But but they lost was Higgins was out for a little bit. Yeah. Um. And and so then they had Ross. They really don't truly have a slot or someone who can play like Jefferson and Moss can. And then they, and then look Etienne. That's going to be the biggest quandary to me. They were down three in the third quarter of that game. They were down three, and at one point, I want to say with less than 10 minutes left, excuse me, left in, less than 10 minutes left, ETN touched the football like one more time. Yeah. One more time. And, and, I, and I'm thinking to myself, from the beginning of the game to this point, he's been really your most stable best player, running the football and then obviously you know catching the football in the screen game or out of the backfield. They went away from him, and I think that was their biggest mistake. And so, look, don't get me wrong, Clemson's very talented, but I think you put Trevor Lawrence in that system uh, with what Joe Brady was having him do and with all the talent around him, I think you'd probably get a very similar result. It's not anything to take away from Joe Burrow. I just feel more confident with the body of work that I've seen from Trevor Lawrence. And let's not forget, he's a true sophomore. Right. I think he's going to continue to get better. Joe Burrow, it was a graduate transfer. He's, what, 23? Yeah. I mean, I think he's older than Lamar Jackson. Right. I mean, he was... I believe third string at Ohio State at this point, like same age, right? Like if he, like so, his... so that's the most interesting thing. And I've talked to Urban about this, yeah. Because when you go back and you look at his journey, right, which which is what makes this story so sweet, because you can make a legitimate case. This was the single greatest season for any college football player in the history of football. This might have been the, the single greatest yeah. team 
considering what LSU did, right? And up there with like Cam you, Newton and, and Tim Tebow and everybody else, yeah. No, no, I would put what they've done this year over any other championship team considering the path they did to get there and how dominant they were within that path. Mm-hmm. So, like, like you, you, whoever you want to mention, and, and, and Tim's season, like, I would put Cam Newton's single season in the SEC over Tim's only because of the talent that Tim had around him right. versus what Cam was playing with right. in Auburn. Uh, and, I, and I think, look, Joe Burrow obviously has a talented team around him. But again, it's the dominance in which he played. But his journey is what's most interesting. You know, you go back and you look at his time at Ohio State. He gets injured in spring, in, in spring ball. So he's not able to win that backup job over Dwayne Haskins, the uh, JT Barrett's final year playing, right? Yep. And, and so in that year, then it's Haskins that goes in the Michigan game, leads them back. He has the momentum going into that spring. Haskins beats out Joe Burrow minimally in the spring and then the rest is history and i've heard the coaches i've heard the coach i've heard the coaches say that like really the difference in going with haskins was that he had the game experience that burrow might have gotten if he hadn't broken his hand right right and i think the other fascinating thing is like the whole complaint from ohio state fans that year haskins had a ridiculous year was he's not a dual threat quarterback he's not what we're used to he's not jt barrett he's not braxton miller he's not cardell jones and you know, Joe Burrow is was more like that. I mean, we're, we we saw last night with his running ability, he could have ran more of that style of offense for Ohio State, and, and instead they went with Haskins, who was more of a true prototypical pocket passer. Um, and, and then I think you look at just from last year to this year, the jump and leap that he took, and it's hard to put your finger on what exactly made it work. But you know, I, I tend to look back from experience when Charlie Weiss got there before my junior year. And you look at my sophomore year to my junior year, I took a huge leap. Now, part of that had to do with us being a young team and, and improving around me, but also had to do with his offense and it enabling me to do a lot of things that played to my strengths. I think Joe Brady did the same thing for this LSU offense, too, when he came in and started to open th- some things up for LSU. What, did Urban, what does Urban say about Joe? No, he just says he's a true competitor. He's a tough kid. He's smart. You know, all the intangibles that you're looking for, but – you know, I don't think they even saw, and it's hard to, in the course of practice or scrimmages, you know, the types of throws and the types of plays that he's made this year. I mean, heck, LSU didn't see it last year. Right. So um, th- that's the thing that I, I think is, you know, looking back on it, you're wondering and scratch your head, like, how did we miss it? But, you know, it's not like LSU was looking at him last year and not thinking that, you know, maybe there was um, the, the potential to, you know, get some, bring someone else. And I, and I think that's the other, you know, story to all this is, Ed Orgeron believing in Joe Burrow to be their guy. Like they didn't go out and get another uh, transfer quarterback. They didn't necessarily, you know, get one of the highest recruited guys to come in and try to let him compete or something. They trusted Joe Burrow. They tr- and they trust him enough to bring in a young guy like Joe Brady to help out with, with the passing game. And so the whole entire story within this team within Joe Burrow this year is just the most fascinating thing to me with how it all worked out in the storybook ending. And what's so interesting, like you mentioned the improvement, right, from last year to this year and Joe Brady's impact and everything else. I think the other interesting thing about it, like you go back, like this has happened three years in a row now. Baker Mayfield, the summer before his last year, probably like a third or a fourth round pick. People liked him as a competitor but didn't really look at him as a great NFL prospect. Like blows it out of the park, like knocks it out of the park. First overall pick, Kyler Murray, summer before his last year. He's a baseball player, not nearly big enough to play in the NFL. Good enough athlete, but can he really? And then all of a sudden, he becomes what he becomes. And this is the same sort of thing, which I, to me, that's so fascinating, Brady. You know, like that you have these guys and guys that were like, you know, like fourth, fifth year guys, like doing that in their final year that just kind of like, I don't know, like became revelations, you know? And, uh, you know, like I guess Trevor Lawrence is sort of the opposite of that. And you were the opposite of that too. Like where like they're sort of identified early. These guys are different. Where so these guys, it just sort of feels like they came onto the scene late or improved late where they put themselves in a position to get go much higher than people expected. It's a terrible time, right, to be a slow learner in this society. Everything's yeah. quick. Everything's like first impression. That's what you base your opinion off of. Like no one gives time to allow people to grow and learn from mistakes and improve. And, and I just, it's one of the things I hate about like everything about our kind of society yeah. right now, to be honest with you, like um, I'll just, I'll be open about it. I work for a number of different networks. One of them puts up a podcast. They have like nine or 10 a week. They have emergency podcasts. And whenever they ask me to be on, I, I just say no, because I don't know how you could ever get anything that, 
has true depth or analysis to it because you just heard about it. Like you can't research it. You can't go back and watch. You can't really develop an opinion or look at some of the facts to build you know, a case for why you believe what you believe. You know, it's just basically like off the top of your, your head opinion. And, and that's where when you look at these quarterbacks and opinions we have on quarterbacks a lot of times, we end up forming that opinion based off a first impression and not allowing them to grow and improve as they move on. And, and so you might miss out on a Joe Burrow and, and that, or, or a Baker Mayfield or whoever it may be if you're not careful. Uh, but look, I, I also think there needs to be a, a fair amount of uh, praise and appreciation for Joe Brady because yeah. if, if LSU would have stuck within the same offensive system and not opened some things up, not done so much empty, not really you know, allowed this offense to, to have Joe Burrow you know, be the pilot you know, at the controls of all of it and then orchestrating all of it, you know, who knows how the season would have turned out differently for them. If you're the Bengals, do you hesitate at all taking him first overall? No. You know what? I, I'm not. It's not only that I'm not hesitating. I, I'm I'm going to go through the motions of doing my due diligence <laughs> just so we have the background information yeah. of all these players. Um, but you have to, you know, you have to remember the scouting department within the Bengals organization is small, right? It's a yeah. mom and pop shop, and coaches um, are super involved. Super, which is a good thing yeah. in my opinion, but also it's a little, it gets a little bit straining. But you know, I, I'm doing all my due diligence for the future for guys who are free agents, back end of the roster guys. And all that, and then obviously the rest of the rounds. But I, I'm negotiating with him now. Like if, if I am dead set that he is the guy, and, and look, I don't think I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't hesitate. Like I would draft him in a heartbeat. I would literally negotiate with him now, sign the contract, which I'm sure will be frowned upon by the NFL. So from day one, he's already got the playbook, and he's already, you know, knows the offense, is working on the plays. Him and Zach Taylor can get a jump start on this whole thing, so he could start day one, and we can get this thing going in Cincinnati. Like that would be how I would handle if I'm the Bengals because technically you got the first pick, you're already on the clock. Are there any holes that you see? Like having watched him this year and obviously the constant, I mean the amazing improvement from, not only from like being a backup like for three years at Ohio State, but then like just the improvement from junior year to senior year. Um, do you see anything, like like when you watch him, like other than just like normal nitpicking growth stuff, like are there holes in his game where you're, you're like, hey, he's really got to clean that up? And honestly, none. I mean, it, I don't see any holes. As you said, it's all nitpicky stuff. It's, you know, is he going to have the strongest arm in this draft? No, he's not, but he's fine. He throws with anticipation. He does a heck of a job, you know, moving within the pocket to make throws. I think the other nitpicky thing, just even watching last night's game, is when you're looking at the variations of looks that they were getting early on, they were having a hard time from the protection standpoint adjusting to it. You know, that's a moment, and, and I don't know what he's being asked or required to do within the protection, but one of two things either has to happen. Either you have to address it and you have to change the protection to block some of that up, and so you know who the free guy is going to be, or you've got to get the, get the ball out of your hand quick. You know, you can't take a sack and, where you've got guys who are pressed up in man-to-man -man coverage and not at least throw the football up quickly to maybe a, it's a route that's adjusting for, you know, to a fade versus press, or even just to throw the football away so you're not losing those yards. Like in the NFL, that sort of stuff will get you beat, right? Knocking, you know, getting, taking a sack and not being in field goal range or losing out in the field position battle. Um, in college football, you can get away with it. But like those little nitpicky things. But That's all honestly, teachable though, right? He, I mean, it's just there's nothing you can really take away from what he's got in his game right now. I mean, all that stuff's teachable that you brought up. Right, yeah. right. I, like, is there somebody he reminds you of? Like I've heard his pocket movement compared – to Brady. Um, yep. I've heard, I've heard some people kind of like look at him and say, he's got some Tony Romo to him. Like, is there anybody that like you watch him, you say like, he sort of projects sort of reminds me a little bit of this guy or that guy. Um, there's pieces like you had said, and, and Pete Prisco is the first one we were talking about him. Cause I had said to him, I was like, you know who he looks like. And he looked at me and he goes, he moves like Tom Brady. I said, I was like, and I just smiled at him because we worked together long enough where um, I, I just, I did, I, I should have anticipated him, you know, being on the same page or us guessing the same guy, but you know, outside of that, he's like, part of me, like part of me after what I witnessed this season from him, I don't even want to make a comparison. Cause I kind of feel like it'd be disrespectful. Yeah. Like, I know that sounds absurd because we're talking <laughs> about NFL quarterbacks, but just watching him play in the way he is, he's more athletic though, the way he moves than Tom Brady. Um, you know, the way he buys time and keeps his eyes downfield, like there's elements of Mahomes, even though his arm isn't the same, if you know what I'm saying, as far mm -hmm. as when he gets out of the pocket and what he does. 
Um, I just it, it's too hard to pick one guy that he most closely resembles, just because he's a combination of I, I think a bunch of different things. But he's he's really just Joe Burrow. And you know what's interesting too, like you bring up what Urban said about like who he is, and I like the people I've talked to in Ohio State's program, like they all love him. Like like to a man, they're rooting for him, right? As somebody brought up a really interesting point to me. And I I want to ask you about this because I know like, like you've obviously been in those locker rooms. Somebody said to me that it was impressive that a kid from rural Ohio could go down there and be an alpha in that program. That is um, one of the reasons that I think when people were like trying to figure out and they go through years later looking back like why this worked, and you think about that right because there is something to that. Like I remember going down to visit South Carolina when Lou Holtz was the head coach. And I remember talking to everyone and obviously loving Lou Holtz, loving Skip Holtz, who was there as their OC at the time. But when sitting there and throwing to kids and talking to kids, I was thinking, man, it's, it's, it's a different world down here. You know, would they be willing to accept me as their leader, as their quarterback, or would they, you know, feel the pressure and want to play a guy who's local or he's from South Carolina or somewhere in the vicinity? Like that thought crossed my mind back then. And then thinking out, thinking about just, you know, growing up through the years, and you'll remember this with John Cooper. Yep. Like he never really fit in Columbus because of the twang and because of his accent. Now, yep. granted, he didn't beat Michigan, didn't win big games, and that was ultimately his downfall, but that's real. Like you have to identify that. And so the fact that he was able to go in and, and do what he did this season, especially coming off last season, because I'm sure there are some doubters and there are some people who are like, yeah, just another year where we're going to lose to Alabama and we'll be playing in, you know, hopefully a decent bowl game. But the strides he took and then the way he did it, and he just kind of doing it in his own way, you know, just kind of Joe Cool, the way he handled everything, I think just won a lot of people over. And it's funny because when I think about how, like, this season and everything else, like, I don't really recall many, like, big statements or anything he said. It's just he led by example. And maybe that's, like, the moral to all this entire story is it doesn't like matter where you come from and where you go to try to have success. But when you lead by example, you really don't have to say anything or it doesn't matter how you talk. And it's weird too. Cause it's just like, I feel like he's one of those guys where you watch him and it doesn't look like, doesn't look like anything's too big for him. You know, like, like it just doesn't like, like you watch the way he carries himself and it's just, everything looks, I, and I, maybe it's like even reflecting the way he play. He plays, everything looks natural. Like, never, never anything looks out of place with him, it feels like. Well, no, because I think he's a great athlete. I think that's the one thing that, you know, he's another case study for, like, hey, stop specializing, kids. Like, he was a great basketball player in Ohio back when he was in high school. You know, he's, he's still, I'm sure, could be a good basketball player if he was asked to. And so I, I think the, the more you can play a more wide-ranging amount of sports, the more it, it helps you in the situations that, you know, you're not trained for. There were situations, there was probably, you know, you know, 30 different times where he had to adjust and he had to do things that you really can't train for. You just have to be an athlete and you have to kind of figure it out in that moment what to do. And, and basketball plays a part in that. You know, once things break down on a fast break, who are you looking for, right? To, to, who has separation or the little flick that he ended up having to Jefferson uh, when he was running to his left and then ran towards the line of scrimmage, then backed up and flicked it to him for the huge gain. Like those sorts of plays, there's not a drill. I don't care what quarterback guru you talk to. If they're practicing that stuff, then they're out of their mind because that's like 0.1% of the times you're ever doing stuff. That comes from just playing in the backyard, playing other sports, playing basketball, playing you know lacrosse and everything else where you naturally just know how to react in that situation. And I remember people saying that about Sam Darnold too. Like He was like a linebacker his sophomore year in high school. He wasn't like a classically trained guy who had a personal coach when he was eight years old. Um, you know, But I remember what, like when I would ask around about Sam Darnold, it was always like from the time he was a little kid, he put a ball in his hand and it didn't matter what sport it was. He just figured it out like, 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 and it's just, I guess there's something to that, huh? A hundred percent. I mean, just Jim Zorn was, is one of the most fascinating people to talk to in regards to throwing motion and just quarterback play and all of that. And he's someone who, when you actually look back at his story and how he came up, how he grew up learning the game, playing the game and, and all of it, um, he just has a very unique approach to it. And he's someone who I think, you know, just talking with him about throwing motions and all that, you know, he loves studying it because the more you study it, the more you realize that some of the best people who do it, they weren't trained to throw a football. They just, they learn how to throw everything. They learn how to skip a rock. They learn how to throw a baseball. They learn how to throw a football. Whatever you put in their hand, they'll be able to throw it. 
Like that, and that's what I think being a great passer is. You know, you can be a great thrower of the football, mm-hmm. but bring a great passer is what it entails of being a quarterback. And that's what Burrow is. You know, he's just a great athlete who's a tremendous passer. And I would be willing to bet any situation you put him in, he would probably be able to figure out a way of being successful at it just because of the, the type of athlete that he is. In fact, you know, it's funny you say that because I remember Patrick Mahomes saying this to me. Like, he learned to throw from all those arm angles from being a shortstop. <laughs> like, that's right. that's where that came from. And and that's where, like, Russell Wilson, same thing. Yeah. You know, he learned all of that from his baseball background. And, and Jim and I would talk during my time out in Seattle about, you know, just Russell's throwing motion and, and everything else because – you know, when you when you try to break it down, there's some things where you go, oh, it could be a little bit tighter, it could be this, or it could be that. But then you go, but in real time when he's playing, it's not that it ever hinders him. And and so that's where like people get too enamored with throwing motions um, instead of just looking at you know how the guy actually you know how the ball actually gets there or how the guy actually plays within it. And and I just think and that's not for this conversation because Burrow doesn't have any issues with that, but it, it does speak to how he just is able to make plays and and how that's going to translate to the next level. Okay, he's Brady Quinn. You can follow him on Twitter, at Brady underscore Quinn. You can catch him on Fox Sports. Brady, you're the best. Always appreciate it, bud. Thanks so much for having me on. Always enjoy it, man. All right, Brady's always great. Appreciate him coming in. We'll jump into the mailbag. You guys know how this works every week. I put the call out for questions, but you guys can reach out to us whenever. Two ways to get to me. You can email us at breermailbag at gmail.com. That's my last name, B-R-E-E-R, mailbag at gmail.com. Or you can call and leave us a voicemail at 201-596-4346. So as we do every week, we'll bring in Shelby Royston, our executive producer, for our questions. Shelby, question number one. From Matthew. With Derrick Henry's contract expiring in 2020, do you anticipate the Titans to franchise tag him? He's already 26 years old, and as we all know, running backs start to decline rapidly after age 27. It's an interesting question, especially because of the style of runner he is. And the thing about franchising somebody, when you do it, the numbers are such now where you're either going to break the bank for the guy or you're treating him as a one-year rental. And so here's the equation that most agents and teams use. It's two franchise tags is the guarantee, and then a contract will usually average out um, at whatever the average of those two numbers is. So what we have, two franchise tags. Let's set the running back number at 12. It'll be somewhere between 12 and 13. Low end would be 12, right? So low end, 12. Two tags, if the, the number is 12, would be $26.4 million. So your guarantee would probably be around $30 million, your real guarantee. And now we're talking about a contract in the neighborhood of 13 2 13-3, 13-4, somewhere in there. So you would basically be paying him a little less than what Todd Gurley and Ezekiel Elliott got, a little more than what David Johnson got. And that's a baseline. That's if he's willing to if he really likes where he's at and is willing to say yes, like like we'll do a fair deal. I I I'm I'm willing to do I'm willing to do that because I want to stay here. There's no guarantee that happens either though. I mean, they didn't take care of him early. He played out he's going to have played out his contract. Um, and when players incur that sort of injury risk, generally they won't take any sort of discount. So I, I think that the franchise tag is an interesting option. The thing is, if you franchise him, then you are either saying he is a one-year rental, we're going to keep him here for one more year, or we're going to sign him to a deal that's right at the top of the running back market. And it's always risky to do that at that position. Shelby, question number two. Voicemail from James. Hey, Albert, it's James. Um, just curious, you know, watching the Packers game last night, they don't look to be the same explosive team on offense that we've seen in the past. Am I saying that just because they're simply more balanced between the run and the pass this year? What do you think uh, for them going forward uh, into San Francisco? Thanks. All right, thanks for the phone call, James. I do appreciate it. I think it's just sort of the makeup of their team. Aaron Jones has emerged, as a lot of Packers fans thought he would, as a, as a really good option out of the backfield. Jimmy Graham can still play. 
Uh, and their receivers, uh, you know, Devontae Adams is a guy who can play at all different levels of the field. And so um, maybe they're not as aggressive downfield as they used to be. As they used to be. Uh, but I think what you're seeing is an offense that's sort of more taking what the defense gives them. And I think that this is as much anything else a sign that Rodgers is really buying into what Matt LaFleur has built there. Um, the reason he had big plays in the past because is because in a lot of cases – you know, Aaron Rodgers would would snap the ball into a look that maybe he wasn't pleased with. Maybe the play call wasn't exactly what he wanted, and he'd go back there and he'd play straight ball. And if you're going back there and, say, 10 snaps, 12 snaps a game, you're going out there and you're playing straight ball, chances are you're going to be taking a lot of big shots down the field. And so I think playing within the structure of the offense is probably another piece of why we're seeing less shots down the field than maybe we have in the past. Shelby, question number three. We have a voicemail from Ray. Hey, Albert, this is Ray from Los Angeles. Uh, one is, first of all, say thank you to uh, you and the MMQB. Really enjoy all your podcasts. Much appreciated. Uh, New York Jets fan here. Just want to ask your thoughts on the current uh, structure of the Jets front office, in particular Joe Douglas. Are they, are they built for long-term success or any hopes for a long-suffering Jets fan? Thanks. Well, thanks, Ray. I appreciate the call and the sentiment there. I, I don't think you're going to find a more respected like road scout um, in the NFL guy who spent his time, you know, kind of beating the beating the scouting trail um, than Joe Douglas. And Joe came up the right way. Um, was the national scout in Baltimore for a lot of years. Um, you know, winds up leaving there to go to Chicago, become college scouting director, help build the Eagles teams of the last few years. That said, we don't know right now. Um, you know, we haven't. He, he came in after the draft. The moves that he's made since then have been relatively minor moves. But even then, you can see where he values. Um, you know what he values, and I, I my guess would be there's going to be a heavy emphasis on the offensive and defensive fronts this off season. Um, I think we're going to see that in the draft. I think we'll see that in free agency. We saw it with some of the more minor moves that he made um, over the course of July and August, where he traded for, say, Alex Lewis from the Ravens. He, um, you know, he signed Matt, he signed Ryan Khalil out of retirement. We're going to see more and more of that. And so, you know, I think for a Jets team that's you know sort of been uneven on the offensive front and has had horses, but it's been like a little like out of balance on the defensive front. I think we're going to see a real emphasis this offseason and going forward and getting those two areas right. And I think that's the right way to build. And Joe's probably um, you know when it comes to that stuff, the right guy to pick him. But again, we just don't have much of a track record quite yet. Shelby, question number four from Charlie. What are your feelings on the AFC North next year? The young QBs in Lamar, Baker, and Burrow make it <laughs> seem like a fun division, but will Ben's experience be enough to stop them? I was actually waiting to see if they would throw Burrow in there already. They didn't disappoint. Burrow is already a part of the AFC North conversation. I I think the Steelers are fascinating going into next year. Here's why. I think there's great benefit in going through what they went through and having to learn to win different ways. And so that team, without being as explosive in the passing game, had to learn to win with defense, had to learn to win with a different type of offense, had to lean on the running game a little bit more. And so I think when you inject Ben Roethlisberger back into that situation, you get another year of growth from Smith-Schuster, you get another year of growth from Deontay Johnson. Like I actually think that they're well-positioned to bounce back in 2019 or 2020. And I look at where they are eight and eight based on all the circumstances isn't bad. So it looks like they finally got the defense, right? Um, They've got good young talent in the offensive skill positions. They've got a veteran line. Um, I certainly think that the Steelers are going to be right there competing with the Ravens for the AFC North title. Unfortunately for everybody in the state where I went to school, I I don't know that the Ohio teams are going to be competitive enough to, to, to challenge those two at the top. Question number five, Shelby. We have a voicemail from John. Hey, Albert, it's John in Austin. Uh, I've heard you and a few other reporters talk about how uh, this year's hiring cycle has been a course correction uh, for last year where we saw a lot of young coordinators get hired. But I'm curious why you think they need a correction. It seems like uh, a lot of those hires have worked out or at least are on the path to maybe working out with Kingsbury in Arizona looking okay. Uh, Sean McVay obviously looking good. 
um, and a few other of those as well panning out. So I just wanted your feedback on why there's already a, a feeling in the NFL that that course needs to be corrected. Thanks. John, thanks for the voicemail. I I would say it's been a little hit or miss, but I think one of the things that we do a little too much in a lot of cases, what we'll like, we'll, we'll look at like this hire not working out and that hire not working out. We'll add one and two and three, and we'll say, okay, like that this just isn't the right way to go. When the majority of NFL hires don't work, like so many guys get fired, and so like college coaches, a good example. People are like oh, college coaches usually don't work in the NFL. Well, most coaches don't work in the U- in the NFL. It's hard to find the right guy. Um, I would say that there has been a correction. There's no doubt about it, and I don't think it's just about any success or failure that any individual coach has had. I think what ends up happening is when everybody is fishing off the same pier, then that part of the lake might kind of start to go dry. And I think that's what we've seen um, you know, over the last couple of years, so many people trying to find the hot young offensive assistant. Like, all right, like if everybody's been fishing off of that pier – well, maybe it might be hard to land one, to land the right one. And so, um, you know, where where this has gone now, we've seen now more experienced head coaches, guys like Mike McCarthy and Ron Rivera get hired. We've seen a special teams coach, Joe Judge, get hired. We've seen the college coach, Matt Rule, get hired. The only young offensive assistant that was a first-time head coach that got hired in this cycle was Kevin Stefanski. So, there was a correction. I think part of it might be like, you know, what we saw with Zach Taylor in Cincinnati, what we saw with Freddie Kitchens in Cleveland. Um, you know, but I, I don't think it's just about that. I think it's also about, you know, when, you know, everybody's been sort of, when everybody's been like kind of like trying to pull from the same pipeline, that pipeline's eventually going to go dry. Question number six, Shelby. From David. Will the Browns be willing to adjust their operational issues so that Stefanski has a possibility to turn this franchise around? Can he effectively manage all the personalities on this team? I don't think it's so—well, the personalities are part of it um, and, and in a roundabout way. Here's how I'll explain that. I think the Browns are committed to see if to, now to see if Paul DePodesta's system works, to see if doing things the baseball way work. I am skeptical of, about that. I think where they got to be careful with it is when there's questions about who's really in charge. Because what that'll wind up doing, again, and we talked about this off the top a little bit, when things go sideways, when things aren't quite right, like people need to know who's in charge. People need to know that, that head coach is in charge. You can't give people the idea that there are seven different bosses, and if one doesn't, doesn't want to listen, then you know you can go to the next one. NFL team cannot work that way. And so I think they are committed to making it work with the baseball people. I don't think that I, – I do think that they want to see – carry that experiment out and see if it actually works in the NFL. Um, I, I think where they have to be careful is they have to make sure that they're not undercutting their head coach by doing this in any way. Um, and they have to, have to, have to, have to eliminate what's existed in that, in that organization for the last eight years which is this sort of appeals court that's been in there. Find the right guy. You think the right guy is Kevin Stefanski. Empower him. Period. End of story. All right. And that'll be it for this week. Thank you for the question. Shelby, thank you to Brady Quinn for coming out. He's awesome every time he comes on here. We appreciate his help, and we appreciate you. So we want your feedback on how we can make this podcast better. You can get to me on social media with all your feedback. I'll check out all of that. We, of course, will continue to apply the some of the changes that you guys may want to see here on the podcast, and especially going into the offseason. We only got a few more le- weeks left in the 2019 NFL season. We'll be ramping up for free agency, the draft, the combine, everything else. So this is a good time to get you to get your feedback over to us. You can get me on Twitter at Albert Breer, on Facebook at Albert R. Breer, on Instagram at Albert underscore Breer. And you should be listening and subscribing to all of our podcasts. They're all on one feed now, the MMQB NFL podcast feed. You can get our Monday morning podcast. You can get our Thursday podcast. You can get the Weekside podcast with Jenny and Connor all in one feed. It's right there for you. And if you're feeling froggy, please leave a rating and review on iTunes. I know that that makes it a little bit easier for people to find us. 
And there's a second podcast we got too that I'm a part of that I want to let you guys know you should know about. If you don't know about it already, that's the MMQB news feed. Every weekday afternoon, you guys can get your news in one place. Maybe you weren't paying attention to the NFL during work. Maybe you want to catch up on what's happened. If you're subscribing to that, that'll get popped into your podcast feed, your drive home. You get about five minutes time, everything that's happened in the NFL on that on that day. Appreciate you guys coming out. Same time next week. We'll see you guys then. Tom Brady stole the show. Now she's talking about it on the latest episode of the Nikki Glazer podcast. I said, tell Tom Brady that I'm the Tom Brady of roasting. Lots of people roasted the goat, but only Nikki is still being talked about. Every time I refresh my DMs, it's 14 blue check marks of people I didn't even know who knew me are writing like paragraphs to me. Hear that in all episodes of the Nikki Glazer podcast on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Nikki Glazer podcast to start listening. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team. Draft experts and talent scouts, mock drafts, and a few shock drafts, too. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.